Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. Romans 7, beginning with verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me for sin. Taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me, may it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin, by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, we looked at the fact that when Paul uses this word law, he refers to the law. Don't just assume you know what it means. And we described how across church history, there have been three categories of law in the Old Testament, and those categories are ceremonial and judicial and moral. And we said that ceremonial was abrogated. The veil in the temple was ripped in two. God told Peter, what I have made clean, don't call unclean, about the clean and unclean animals, which was the center of the ceremonial law, what was clean and what was unclean. About the judicial, we said, we're not in a theocracy. We're not ruled directly by God. You know, when the pillar of fire, the, the, pillar, the cloud move, they move. That's not America today, okay? And so the judicial laws don't have application to uh, whatever you want to call our form of government right now. Um, But we said that the judicial laws do have application to us in their general equity. In other words, as they show us how to get along with each other, how to punish crimes, how to protect the weak and the orphan, then we should listen to them. And we said that much of Western law has come from the general equity of the Old Testament law. So ceremonial is abrogated, done with. Judicial is abrogated in the particulars, but in the principles, most of Western law, and especially English common law, comes from the judicial law, but it doesn't apply to us directly. And then the moral law is God's character. The moral law shows us the perfections, the attributes of God. And so that's eternally existent in God, will eternally apply, universally applies. All right? So the moral law stands firm. Now, which is it that the Apostle Paul is saying, I died to the law? And we said, well, it has to be the moral law. Why? Well, because he says, for, you know, I would have not have known what envy was if the commandment had not said, you shall not envy. 
And that's the tenth of the Ten Commandments. So when the Apostle Paul is talking about us dying to the law, he's not talking about the ceremonial and judicial law. Were it so easy? Oh, I get it. I won't circumcise my sons. I'll baptize them. Oh, I get it. End of discussion. No, 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 no. And you'd be surprised how many people say that's what the Apostle Paul is referring to. Why? Well, because we all get so uptight about the grace of God that we want to continue to apply the moral laws, the standard by which we discriminate between those who belong to God and those who don't. Do you see this? And so what you end up having when people are trying to just simply say the Apostle Paul is saying it's just the ceremony and the judicial that, that are abrogated. We've died to them, but we still live by the moral law. What happens? What happens? When that becomes the central teaching of a church, you have Pentecostalism. Now, why do I single out Pentecostalism? Well, because I live in a Pentecostal area. Is it because I'm trying to slap around all the people who are Pentecostal? No. But how is it that you know immediately in Walmart who's Pentecostal? It's because they have set up a standard by which you discriminate between those who belong to God and those that don't. And somehow that standard has to do with a particular hairstyle and a particular form of a blue jean skirt. Come on, we all know this, right? That we don't do. Why not? Well, because we've died to the law. So then immediately we're going to say, oh, are you saying that we should do uh, evil that grace may abound? It's like, oh my goodness. No, I'm not saying that. Okay? This is what the Apostle Paul has as his facial expressions as he writes Romans. It's like, how about the excluded middle? (laughs) You know? It's either Pentecostalism and jean skirts, or let's sin that grace may abound. Now, put this, on, put this on hold for a second and listen to me. You know how I'm always saying that God assigns our sex at the moment of conception? Because there's a tremendous attack on our sex today. Everybody wants to say, well, I can dress any way I want, have hair any way I want, have sex any way I want, lust any way I want. It's my own choice. And so I'm always saying, no, God assigned you an office when you were conceived, and that office is either male or female. And Christian faith confesses that office. Okay? This is basic. All right? And so then yesterday I get an email from a guy. Or a tweeter, who knows? I can't keep track of it. But somewhere, somebody asked me personally, so you seem to really be talking a lot about the necessity of being manly. And you say that it has to do with clothing. So can you describe to me what exactly the clothing is that you need to wear if you're going to be manly? 
And so I wrote him back and I said, here's a picture of me. I mean, come on. Oh, my goodness. So immediately when you call people to love God and to confess their faith by living the sex he made them personally, at the moment of conception, immediately they want me to start dressing in blue jean skirts and come up with a rule about how we dress if we're manly. You see, this this is always what we do. We either say, let's sin that grace may abound, and it doesn't matter how you dress, or we say, wear blue jean skirts if you're a woman, and don't cut your hair, and have it up during the week, but have it down when you go to bed. And so what we try to do is we try either to be antinomian or to be more or less legalists. And in our churches, what we try to do is set up standards of dress, standards of greeting each other, standards of worship, standards of music that sign the particular point that we've decided represents godliness. Do you understand this? What we're never willing to do is live together as sinners. But there is no other way for Christians to live together than as sinners. Listen, if you're married, how long does it take you to get up in the morning before you're irritated with your husband? I mean, honestly. And I'm not making a statement about your husband being irritating. I'm making a statement about your pig-headed selfishness as a woman and as a wife. And you're thinking, well, why did he single out the women? It's like, okay, men. (laughs) How long does it take you to get up in the morning before you're irritated with your wife? Who cleans the toothpaste stains in the sink you share? You or your wife. Whoever cleans it is irritated by the other one. I mean, honestly, people, can we please get a sense of how deep sin is in us? Can we please get it into our heads that we need Jesus? And that church is a place for sinners. Every church says they are, but you go into other churches and you try to confess your sins, you just see what happens to you. The Apostle Paul is dealing with Christians who want to go to one side or the other. They want to go to moralism or they want to go to antinomianism. They either want to deny their sinners or they want to give way to sin. And the Apostle Paul is trying to explain to them that the law is good, but that they have died to the law. You know, if I were to summarize this entire section with one statement, that would be it. We have died to the law, and I want to say, but the law is good, but what I really want to say is, 
we have died to the law, and the law is good. Or, we have died to the law through the law, or it's through the law that we have died to the law, and it is good. Or, it is good that we have died to the law through the law. And I could go on and on and on, but every single statement would involve blessing and showing the excellence of the law of God, the moral law of God, and of the fact that we are dead to the law. And so you watch the Apostle Paul weaving and, 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 and jumping and, and, and evading and hitting, and he's going along and along and along about the nature of sin and the nature of law. And at the same time, you're being taught constantly, you've died to sin, you've died to the law, you must honor the law of God. And the last half? Well, maybe not half. Quarter, Stephen? Of the book of Romans, what would you say? Anyhow, he's, he's not here, but... I, huh? Last five, so a quarter. So a quarter of the book of Romans is the law. You know, do this, don't do that, don't you dare do that. Do this, don't do that, don't you dare do this. And so there must be goodness of the law, and there must be a necessity for Christians to keep the law. So now, the law is the moral law. The Apostle Paul says he would not have known what envy was if the Bible had not said to him, you shall not envy, okay? And what he says is, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet, covet envy. And we go through the Ten Commandments, and we see that these commandments are deep, that actually you don't even know what it is to covet or to envy until you have somebody preach to you what coveting and envying are. You know, this last couple of weeks ago, I read a, a friend had written a chapter. He's written a book on the ten, seven deadly sins. He wrote a chapter on envy. And I read this chapter on envy. And when I got done reading the chapter, it was very clear to me that I had no idea what envy was until I'd read the chapter, and that envy was the single or ordering principle of all social media. Okay? The ordering principle of social media. The Apostle Paul says, is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, it would not have come to know sin. And then he says, it would not have known coveting if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, what? What does it say? Don't look. Produced in me what? Come on. Coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, um, it's, it's not done this, this way up on the screen, but that is, doesn't exist in the Greek. Okay? It's in italics if you look at a printed version of the NASB. And so you're thinking, okay, what do you mean the law is dead? Well, read it this way. Read law dead. 
all right? Or sin is dead, I'm sorry. Apart from the law, sin, dead. What does it mean that sin is dead? Well, we know that from the time of Adam, after the fall, we have been depraved. Original sin has corrupted us all. It has corrupted every aspect of us. It has corrupted our will. It has corrupted our actions. It's corrupted our tongue, our stomach. It's corrupted our feet. It's corrupted nature. It's corrupted government. It's corrupted reason and logic. There's nothing that isn't corrupted by sin. And so he's not saying that sin doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's like to be a a Christian scientist, you know? And that's an old woman religion, trust me. You know, you don't want to have an old woman religion. You say, why do I say that? Well, because for three years in seminary, I cleaned the Christian science reading room and church in Rockport, Massachusetts. And I know what Christian science is. All right? You don't want to be a logical positivist. You don't want to have some ethereal notion of sin not existing. It's just a figment of your imagination. We just live above the plane and don't admit that it hurts and that there's guilt. Then sooner or later, all of us together can, you know, be singing love, love, love. All we need is love. No, it's not saying that sin doesn't exist. It's saying sin is dead. In what sense is it dead? Sin is dead in that it doesn't have the uh, power of influence that it does when the law is brought to bear. In other words, when you do not have the law, all right, you're with me, you will be complacent. You will be smug. You will be self-satisfied. You will be arrogant. Why? Well, because sin is dead. You are oblivious to yourself. And the one thing that everybody that's around you knows is that you are oblivious to yourself. And they will find it intolerable. It's not that sin doesn't exist with you. It's that you have not been um, radiated. You have not been awakened. You have not been made aware of who and what you really are. Are you with me? And so sin is dead. You know, it's like little kids, you know. I'm sitting there in the back and I'm watching uh, Elias. (laughs) Oh, man. And he has the slightest no given to him by his beautiful mother. My daughter? And immediately what I see him, this little punk, you know, immediately I see his head turning away from her. How old is he? One and a half. To little Elias, there is no law and sin is dead. Many of you were that way for a long time. Smoking in the boys' room. 
blissfully ignorant. Getting wasted, getting stoned, getting drunk, popping pills, having sex, accruing money, wealth. I don't know. But there was no sin because you were lawless. You were apart from the law. You know, honestly, you know I'd be looking at you. Many of you who are coming of age in Christian homes hate the law of God. Many of you wish you had been raised in a home that was lawless. Because you find your conscience intolerable. And you blame that on your parents or me. I think that's one of the most common complaints that people in churches have against their pastors, is that their pastor is always telling them no. But of course their pastor isn't always telling them no. I didn't ask you to wear blue jean skirts this morning. But it is the goal of a pastor to awaken your conscience. It is the goal of a pastor to vivify sin. To make it alive in you. It's not a fault on my part. So many of you treat, when people rebuke you here, you treat them as if they're the ones that are pressing you. Are you kidding me? You want to go back to sleep? I mean, honestly, is that really what you want, is to go back and live among liars? No. That's the reason you're here. You want to be alive. Sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, says the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, what do we know about the Apostle Paul? Well, we know that the Apostle Paul was born into a Christian family. Now, you'll have to translate that into Chinese. I don't know how to do that. But he was born into a covenant family. He was born into a Christian family. He was born into a Jewish family. Not only that, but he was born into the most conservative Jewish tradition of Pharisaism. He went to Gamaliel. The Apostle Paul had everything a good, godly child of the church could have. All right? His father was Stephen Baker, and then he went to Ligon Duncan, or to Tim Keller, or somebody like that, to study. All right? And the Apostle Paul describes himself in the next, oh, 18 verses. And the Apostle Paul uses the first person pronoun almost 50 times. The rest of this chapter is deeply autobiographical. He is completely caught up in testifying about himself. He says, I, me, or my, like 47 times in this section of verses, in the the last three quarters of this chapter. 
Now, I want you to think about that for a second. This goes into the section of Scripture that more than any other describes the battle between the law of God and the depraved heart of man. And almost 50 times, the Apostle Paul, a child of the church, with Stephen Baker as a father, and Vern Poitras, if you will, as his instructor, and he comes through it and says, I found within me, I wanted to do this, I, but I found myself doing the very thing I didn't want to do. I found a law of sin and death in me. And that's how a child of the church, raised in the most conservative tradition of God's people, describes the process of God working with him. And so the question is, what on earth is he talking about? He's supposed to be a Christian. He's an apostle. How can I respect him when he's going on this way? That which I would, I don't, and that which I don't, I would. That which I try not to do, and I find within me a law of sin and death, but, but I desire to keep the law, but it's like, Paul, grow up. You know, honestly, get a grip, dude. I mean, if we're honest and we read the rest of this chapter, that's what we would say. So I said I'm going to get done early, but David just said I had three minutes, but I'm not going to get done early. But it's only 12.17. And so let me do one more thing. In the next weeks, we're going to look at those uses of the first person singular pronoun, I, me, and also my. And we're going to say, is he talking about himself before he was a Christian? Is he talking about himself when he was a baby Christian and he did not have Christ on the throne of his heart? Now, you know, I don't think that, but you all know from Campus Crusade, that's what they teach. Okay? Or is he talking about the normal Christian life? And you know that that is absolutely what I believe. And that's what Augustine believed. And that's what the Reformers believed. Even though many people today who are Protestant Reformed deny it. Now I want to end by going to Augustine. I want to read you something. And I want to ask if this is your experience. Remember how the Apostle Paul is a child of the church. He had the most conservative tradition of God's people. And he was trained by the most conservative, respected uh, professors of seminary at his time. Augustine is identical. Augustine was raised by Monica, who is the paragon of virtue in the Western Church of Motherhood. She prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. You should read what Augustine says about his mother and her love for his soul in, 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 his, in his autobiography called His Confessions. Now I'm going to read a section from the Confessions. And I want you to realize, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 7. This is what Augustine testifies about himself. Both of them are sons of the church. They both have godly parents. They're raised with all the privileges of covenant succession. Now listen to this. Remember how Paul says, I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not told me thou shalt not covet. Augustine writes, 
he's describing stealing, and he says, for I stole something that I already had enough of. In fact, I had better things than the thing I stole. So he's going to describe stealing now. He says, I didn't even care what it was I stole because I just took joy in stealing and in the sin itself. He says, a pear tree there was near our vineyard laden with fruit, tempting neither for its color nor its taste. Okay? There's a pear tree. It was not on our property. I looked at it, and it didn't have any good color, and it didn't have any good taste, but the fruit was hanging it down. And he says, to shake and rob this, some lewd young fellows of us went late one night, having, according to our pestilent custom, prolonged our sports in the streets till then. He says, look, there's some disgusting dudes. Now remember, he's a child of the church. Me and some other disgusting dudes had a habit of staying out very late at night. And so we went over and we saw this tree, okay? And we took huge loads of the pears. Not for our eating, but to throw them at the hogs. We only tasted them, and this, but to do what we liked only because it was misliked. Behold my heart, O God, behold my heart. This is one of the, if not the best book I've ever read. Because Augustine is so piercing in confessing his sin. And he says right at this point, I just did it for the hell of it. Because it was evil, and I wanted to do evil. Behold my heart, O God. Behold my heart, which thou hadst pity upon in the bottom of the bottomless pit. That's who I was. Look at my heart, and you had pity on me when I was down at the bottom of the bottomless pit. Now behold, let my heart tell you what it sought there. In other words, when I was down very at the bottom, let me tell you what I wanted when I was down there. That I... I wanted to be gratuitously evil. What does the word gratuitous mean? It means just evil for evil's sake. I had no other desire. I just wanted to be evil, gratuitously evil. Having no temptation that was wrong, I just wanted the wrong itself. It was foul, he says, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved to perish. I loved my own fault, not that for which I was faulty, but my fault itself. Foul soul, falling from thy firmament, from way high, to utter destruction, not seeking anything through the shame, but the shame itself. I mean, this is such a beautiful description of the world that you live in. They're not seeking anything through the shame. They just want the shame. He continues, What then did wretched I so love in thee, thou theft of mine, thou deed of darkness in that 16. So this guy's 16 years old, been raised in the church, been raised by a godly mother. He's 16 years old, hanging out 
late at night, and he goes and takes all the pears and throws them to the pigs. This is a son of the church. Fair were those pears, but I didn't want the pears, for I had stores of better pears. He said, I had many better. And those I gathered only that I might steal. For when gathered, I threw them away. My only feast in them was just my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. For if any of those pears came within my mouth, what sweetened the pears in my mouth was my sin. What fruit had I then, wretched man, in those things of the remembrance whereof I am now ashamed, especially in that theft which I love for the theft's sake, and it too was nothing, and therefore the more miserable I who loved it. Yet alone I had not done it. Now he goes into another aspect of his sin, and you should always catalog all the different parts of your sin. Not other people's sin. Some of you are very good at parsing other people's sin. I want you to parse your own. So Augustine is now talking about another aspect of his sin, which is what? That he didn't do it alone. He did it with company, with other young men. All right, And he says, I did not do it alone. I had never done it alone. I loved then in it also the company of the accomplices with whom I did it. For had I then loved the pears I stole and wished to enjoy them, I might have done it alone, had the bare commission of the theft sufficed to attain my pleasure, nor needed I have inflamed the itching of my desires by the excitement of accomplice. In other words, I could have done it myself if what I really wanted to do was just steal. But he said, I wanted the excitement of accomplices. I wanted other people to join me in my sin. But since my pleasure was not in those pairs, it was in the offense itself. Now listen to this carefully. Which the company of fellow sinners occasioned. Who can understand his errors? It was the sport, which as it were tickled our hearts, that we beguiled those who little thought what we were doing and much disliked it. Why then was my delight of such sort that I did not do it alone? See, he keeps asking this question. Why didn't I do it? Why didn't I do it alone? Why didn't I do it alone? Why didn't I do it alone? Are you all getting weary of him asking, why didn't I do it alone? He says, yet I had not done this alone. Uh, Yeah, we got that. He wants you to note what's coming. Alone, I had never done it. He's like, dude, we got it. You were alone. Okay. Behold, my God, before thee, the vivid remnants of my soul. Alone, I had never committed that theft. (laughs) But when it is said, let's go, let's do it, we are ashamed not to be shameless. (laughs) You all know what he's saying. Think of how many sins in your life you've committed because you're ashamed not to be shameless. You're surrounded by people who are doing it, and it would shame you not to join them in their sin. Look at how he escalates his sinfulness. He keeps pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. Why? He says, who can disentangle that twisted and intricate naughtiness? And it's not 
N-A-U-G-H-T. It's K-N-O-T-T-I-N-E-S, like when you, when you cast and it goes all askew. Okay? And then he says this. He says, foul. Foul is it. I hate to think on it, to look on it. But now, this is it. But thee I long for. Oh, righteousness and innocency, beautiful and comely to all pure eyes and of a satisfaction unsating, which we would say insatiable. I can't get enough of God's goodness. With thee is rest entire and life imperturbable. Now what's imperturbable? No ripples, no waves, no disturbance whatsoever, just pure life. Whoso enters into thee enters into the joy of his Lord and shall not fear. And shall do excellently in the all excellent. I sank away from thee and I wandered, O my God, too much astray from thee, my stay, in these days of my youth, and I became to myself a barren land. This is us. This is covenant children, us. This is Gamaliel. This is Vern Poitras. This is Reform. This is conservative Christian. This is us. And there is no good in us. And we'll move on now next week. We'll get into his use, I, 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 and see what he's saying. But let's go in recognizing this is the church. It's Augustine. It's Paul the Apostle. And it's why we need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will give us open eyes and hearts that as we go into the last part of the chapter of Romans 7, that we won't have our guard up, but that we will be able to join the Apostle Paul and Augustine in saying of ourselves, Oh, wretch that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, we pray in his precious name. Amen.